Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to All Stats Aren't We, a podcast in which Leeds fans cast their combined eye over goings-on at Elland Road, giving scrutiny to the underlying statistics and tactical footings at work at Leeds United. But today we're doing something slightly different. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined by a special guest, Alex Benham. Alex is a PhD student at the University of Oxford, working on the history of pandemics. And he's going to spend some time talking to us about the protocols and processes behind the championship restart that has been confirmed will happen on June the 20th. Alex, thanks for coming on. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks, John. Yeah, like, well, as as good as anyone can be in these, like, current circumstances. Like, uh, yeah, staying inside... Um, ignoring the government's advice to go back to normal. <laughs> that's kind of the, that's kind of the operation at the moment. Yeah, well, I'm uh, enjoying having some conversation with you. And before I begin, I should uh, note that I came across Alex because he did a couple of uh, episodes for the Extra Inch podcast, which is a Spurs fan podcast. Uh, and they put a, a, a little bit of time into scrutinising the Premier League's plans for a resumption. Um, and because I haven't seen very much in the media scrutinising the EFL's plans, I thought it'd be great to get Alex on. So if you want to um, hear what will be a fuller um discussion because there's about two hours of material over there do head over to the extra inch and and catch up with some of that um before we begin alex we live in an age allegedly where when expertise is largely sniffed out i say i say that because it's a cliche that i don't particularly like but i think it's good for you to begin by telling us what your area of expertise is what is it that you're working on and how do you think that applies to um the issue of coronavirus in the modern day so for the last two years or so, I've been studying how the British state has responded to historical pandemics. So I'm particularly interested in the bubonic plague uh, at the end of the 1800s, tuberculosis in Birmingham in the 1960s and HIV in London uh, in the sort of 1980s and 1990s. I'm not an epidemiologist or a sort of virologist per se. I'm a public health historian. So my work obviously involves having a sort of general understanding of the science, but I'm far more interested in how that science actually gets applied and how that shapes the way that authorities try to contain and control contagion. 
So my professional life, I'd say, is sort of dictated and dedicated to studying how authorities use science in their response to pandemics. But my personal life is kind of consumed by, as with many people, an obsession with football. So when the footballing authorities started considering how to return to playing in the midst of a pandemic, unsurprisingly, my two worlds sort of collided a bit. And that's how I became so interested in Project Restart, but also how football leagues um, in this country and, and across across other countries as well are trying to get back to a position to play again. Just on that subject, you've mentioned three plagues that you're studying or three pandemics that you're studying, um, all of which are different diseases, um, so bubonic plague, tuberculosis and HIV. And then we're talking about coronavirus, obviously, which is entirely different again because that's a respiratory disease. Um the idea of history obviously has the this this logic of repeatability lying behind it. So how do you how do you um, account for the differences between those diseases? And uh, I guess I'm, I guess my question is, to what extent are there similarities between these um, these pandemics? And and are those similarities um, biological, or are they are they simply sociological? Are they simply that governments respond in the same sorts of ways over and over again, as far as you can see in the histories that you're studying? I mean, there's a there's an obvious and huge repeatability here, and that's both on the level of sort of biology and on on sociology as well, both in terms of the diseases themselves and how governments tend to react to them. So, Public Health England's contingency plan at the moment is based on studies of the 1970 to 1918 Spanish flu and there's such clear similarities there which is which is why the government is so keen to learn from them so the first wave of Spanish flu in Britain from May to July 1917 was not particularly bad Um, people certainly died but it was not catastrophic but the British government failed to learn lessons and take proper precautions against the recurrence of the virus and then in September 1917 a more virulent and deadly strain of the Spanish flu emerged By October, there were 4,500 deaths a week in Britain, dozens of people collapsing in the streets. There was a shortage of coffins. Council workers were drafted into dig graves. It was an absolute catastrophe. Spanish flu ended up killing 228,000 people in Britain, maybe more. And the vast majority of that was in the second wave. So all this concern that we hear today about a second wave of coronavirus is founded on studies of the best model we have which is the last global pandemic of our highly contagious novel pulmonary virus, which was the Spanish flu. So in that example, you can see that it's both biological and sociological. It's both the nature of a novel virus in and of itself, and also the particular ways in which governments try and fail to contain a novel contagion like that. We've already mentioned that you're a Spurs fan and you were on the Extra Inch podcast recently. Um, could you give us a brief summary of what it was that you said on those two episodes that you did for them? So there's, as you said, about two hours of content there, but I'll try and distill it down to sort of the essential points. So the first thing I talked about was my research. So there's a long section in there about Spanish flu and how it affected football during and after the First World War. So generally matches continued, but they seem to have spread the disease. Some players got sick, some players actually died. Uh, I then tried to sort of bring that information up to date and looked at Project Restart's testing regime, so the particular problems with those tests and the dodgy history of the company behind them. So for those who don't know, the chief executive of Pronetics, which is the company providing tests to the Premier League, was dragged through court by the US Federal Trade Commission in 2015 over, funnily enough, a test app for skin cancer. 
that allegedly made unfair or deceptive claims about its reliability. According to scientific analyses, this app had no real scientific merit whatsoever. And this guy, Abby Lazarell, the chief executive of Pronetics, was actually forced to settle to um, pay $60,000 and was barred from making any further deceptive help claims. So there's all of that to do with Pronetics and Project Restart in the Premier League. I also spoke about the particular threat to BAME players, um, which is obviously in the news this week as an official Public Health England report has found that on a national level, BAME people are twice as likely to die of the disease than white people in Britain. I tried to explain why this is a product of uh, sort of systemic racism, of riskier jobs and poorer housing, and also how this is manifested in the personal lives of BAME players like Sterling, Kante, Dean... And then I, I guess I also briefly talked about the inherent dangers of trying to limit contact while training for a contact sport, which is the somewhat absurd position that the footballing authorities sort of currently find themselves in. Uh, just for a, a point of clarification, BAME stands for Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic. So for any of our listeners who, who um, haven't heard that uh, acronym before. Um I think it's best for us to work through, I think, three points there that you've you've mentioned. So you've got the unreliable tests bought from a man with a dodgy history of, of working in public health, um, or at least the public health industry. Um, disproportionate risk faced by BAME players, and then the inherent dangers of training protocols. So let's let's w- work broadly through those. Um, so firstly, the the, the testing protocols. Um, and I'm interested, in, obviously, particularly from a championship perspective here. So could you begin briefly, um, sorry, can you begin by briefly explaining how you might go around testing A, if someone has coronavirus, and then B, if they have had coronavirus? Because I think there's a lot of confusion in the, just in the general populace about what people are being tested for when they are, when they are being tested for coronavirus. No, absolutely. There's been a huge amount of confusion about this. And it's not just in the general population, it's amongst the media and somewhat embarrassingly amongst the EFL itself, which continually misidentifies the test that it itself is trying to give out to its uh, to its clubs. So if you want to just find out if someone has had coronavirus in the past, you just run an antibody test. So you take a blood sample and you look for two antibodies that are produced by the immune system when it comes into contact with the coronavirus, which is IgM antibodies and IgG antibodies. Now, obviously, that's not very useful in the context of football, where you want to know if someone currently has the disease and is potentially infectious. So to do that, you need to use the reverse transcription quantitative polymerized chain reaction test, or RT-QPCR test for sure. The QPCR test is designed to tell you whether someone has the virus at that moment by detecting the viral RNA of the coronavirus, which is the molecule that stores its genetic code. The problem is... A lot of people are calling this an antigen test, but it's not an antigen test. It's not looking for antigens on the virus, which are structures on on the surface of the virus. It's looking for the viral RNA of the coronavirus. Um, So it's a slightly pedantic definition or distinction, but it is important. A lot of people are calling this a coronavirus antigen test when it isn't. It's a qPCR test. So this all sounds very complicated, but the process itself is actually really quite simple. You take a sample from the subject, usually via a nasal or a throat swab, you copy the RNA into DNA, and then you try to match it against the genetic sequence of the coronavirus. 
To determine the outcome of the qPCR test, you measure the quantity of the viral RNA in the sample against a set threshold, above which a person is positive, below which they are negative. So the actual process behind a qPCR test is relatively straightforward. Um, and which of these options is the EFL using then with the players in the championship? What does their, their process actually look like? So the EFL is using the qPCR test the same as the Premier League. Most people actually presume the EFL would obtain its test from Prenetics, um, the same biotech company that the Premier League is using, but surprisingly they've opted for a different country, nationwide pathology. The EFL is going to procure the test centrally, but each club is going to have to contribute around £100,000 to pay for them. On top of this, the clubs can pay an extra sum, I believe around £660 per three-hour session, for an independent tester from Nationwide to come and carry out the swap procedure. This will need to happen twice a week, as all players and staff are going to have to be tested twice a week until under the return to training protocols that the EFL step set out. So what's sort of quite staggering about this is the strange compromise that the EFL has arrived at on this. So apparently some of the clubs within the championship were unwilling to meet this extra cost of paying for a tester from Nationwide. So the EFL has compromised and said that the clubs can either pay for independent testers from Nationwide or alternatively they can assign their own staff as testers or let individuals test themselves. So eight clubs have chosen this option of self-testing, one of which we know is Middlesbrough, but the other seven as are as of yet unnamed. So yeah, this is this is a relatively staggering development, which I was I was amazed to learn. <laughs> and um, how effective do you think that, that this method is going to be? So I would say that there are sort of two general problems with this method, or two two problems. A general problem with the test itself, and a specific problem relating to how the EFL are going to administer it. So firstly, the general problem. For someone with COVID-19 to test positive with a QPCR test, there has to be a large enough quantity of the virus on the swab for it to be detected. The problem is that with coronavirus, as with most pulmonary viruses, the quantity of the virus in someone's respiratory system varies massively from person to person, so some people will have large quantities, some almost none at all. The quantity also varies according to the stage of the infection, so most importantly some people will only have a detectable quantity of the virus in their system for a few days after the beginning of the infection. This is one of the reasons that the qPCR test for coronavirus can have a higher false negative test rate, which means that a higher rate of missing the virus, even though someone actually has the infection. So according to Dr. James Gill at the Warwick Medical School, when tested alone, the PCR test has a 66.7% detection rate within the first week. So about 67% of people who actually have coronavirus will test positive on the PCR test. That's a very high false negative rate. You are telling a lot of people that they don't have coronavirus when in fact they do have the virus. This general problem has been made much worse by the specific problem generated by the EFL's decision on testing. Allowing untrained individuals to test others or even themselves massively increases the chances that the swab procedure will be conducted ineffectively. Now, swabbing is really unpleasant, as anyone who's had to endure it will know. In the throat, you have to push the swab back until it hits your tonsils, uh, once on either side. The way you know you've done it properly is that you gag. 
in the nose, you have to push it all the way to the back of each nostril until you feel resistance. And this usually makes most people tear up. All of this has to be done without contaminating the sample at any point. Your hands have to be perfectly clean. The swab mustn't touch anything else. My worry is that players and staff will invalidate the test results, either through a desire to reduce discomfort, not pushing the swabs back deep into the nose or the throat, or by accidentally contaminating the samples. So what we effectively have in the championship is a two-tier system where a minority of players and staff are experiencing an even less reliable test than that being used by the majority. I think it would be good at this point maybe to talk about the differences between the, the Premier League protocols and, and the Championship protocols. So um, you obviously know both of them. What are the main differences and, and would you say which would you say is, is the better protocol? I mean, the one major difference between the Premier League and the Championship has to do with this question of independent testers. As far as I understand it, all of the Premier League tests are being carried out by independent testers from Prenetics, and there is no option whatsoever for players and staff to carry out their own tests. This improves the chance of effective swab procedure and reduces the chance of sample contamination. The Championship have made, and the EFL with the Championship, have made this bizarre decision to create this two-tier system and where some people are doing their own tests and some people are having those tests done to them. And it's, yeah, that, that creation of a two-tier system, I think, is the, is the one thing that really differentiates the, the championship protocols from those being used in the Premier League. As an aside, the Premier League tests have thrown up far fewer positive results. Is there any explanation for this? So this is a great question. Um, no one really knows the answer to it. In the latest round of testing on Monday and Tuesday this week, there was one positive test in the Premier League, funnily enough, at Tottenham, and nine in the Championship. So there's obviously four less clubs in the Premier League, but there are also a lot of other factors. Players and staff at Premier League clubs tend to be better paid, so they live in more isolated houses, have more resources for social distancing, use less public transport, maybe have less close contacts and riskier jobs. Also, I think another element is that we've seen various scandals about Premier League players. There's a far greater degree of media scrutiny on Premier League clubs, and there's a much greater feeling of being surveilled by the people who work for them. I think this has forced Premier League players and staff to probably observe social distancing a little bit more carefully than perhaps their peers in the Championship have, just on that fear of being caught out by players like Serge Aurier, for example, that Tottenham have, or Jose Mourinho has for hosting training sessions in the park during during the lockdown. You've mentioned to me before we came on air that Leeds have purchased their own PCR testing machine. What is a PCR testing machine and what is a PCR test and how useful will this be for the club? So this is a this is a fascinating detail that, that came out uh, sort of last month. Before the EFL came to an agreement with Nationwide Pathology, Leeds actually bought their own PCR machine, meaning they technically have the capacity to test samples on site. So this machine is a vivalytic analyzer from Randox Biosciences. It's an excellent piece of kit. It's brand new, top of the range. It potentially costs well over a hundred thousand pounds. These machines uh, from Randox only appeared in the UK last December, and the first company to buy one, funnily enough, was Nationwide Pathology. What's interesting about the Vivalytic Analyzer is that it's fully automated. Almost anyone can use one. They don't require specialist training. From what I understand, I think Leeds United are planning on now using the Vivalytic to carry out their own rapid tests on the families of their players and on the broader staff of the club. So with the Vivalytic Analyzer, you can get a result in about two and a half hours. So this will allow Leeds to supplement the mandated testing from Nationwide Pathology with their own 
more general uh, testing apparatus. And I think this is an excellent idea. The, the more tests and the more people you are testing, the more likely you are to catch a case before it becomes a cluster at the club. So I think the, the plan is to use this infrastructure that they've built up within the club to sort of supplement the uh, essential mandated tests being dispersed, dispensed by the, by the, by the EFL more generally. Um, I just want to add a question, actually, that's just struck me. Um, just almost going back to what we said before about Leeds having their own PCR test um, available. Um, what do you think the, the issue is going to be is if, if clubs have their own testing um, capabilities um, and they are throwing up a lot more um, positive cases than maybe are showing up in the EFL's official testing, do you, what, do you think there's a capacity for clubs to kind of brush stuff under the carpet or do you think that they'll be pretty open and say, look, we have these issues, especially if you're testing like players' families. If you've got players' families and you suddenly have a, an outbreak amongst some of the families, what, what, what do you think the clubs are going to do there? A particular problem with testing players' families deliberately as a club is that at the moment if someone in a player's household tests positive they have to isolate for seven days it's an addendum to the protocols so there would actually be a a potential playing disadvantage to leads if they were to test and to discover more thoroughly than other clubs are and that they were to discover that some players households had 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 active uh, infections within them so I think we then enter a very grey area, which is that the only results that the clubs are forced to declare are those within the official nationwide nationwide pathology tests. All other tests don't have to be reported as far as I know. So there is then the potential for clubs like Leeds to potentially limit the, the spread of that information. Whether they would or not would, would be at the, at the club's discretion, and I, I think that leaves us in a... Yeah, in a grey area where competitive advantage may well be in contradiction with openness and transparency about the course of these tests. And what's the protocol if uh, players fail the test then in the, in the championship? So generally, if you test positive, you have to isolate for seven days, no discussion. You can then test again. And if this time you test negative and you are asymptomatic, you can return. If you test negative but you have symptoms, you also have to isolate. One thing that worries me about this protocol is the potential for someone to be asymptomatic and test negative but still actually have the virus and be infectious, which is particularly possible after the first few days of the infection. There's there's basically two safety nets uh, at work in the champion in the championship protocols in the EFL, and. I think both of them have sizable holes in which are not covered by the other safety net, if that makes sense. It's quite possible to imagine someone who will somehow test negative and be asymptomatic and yet still be carrying the virus and still be infectious. And I think that's one potential problem of the the protocols is that there's not a third safety measure to catch those people. And what happens if multiple players in a team fail the test? I believe that if there's three or more positive tests at one club within a testing round, then the league's medical advisors have to be notified. I think the EFL will then consider extra measures, but there aren't actually any details about this in the return to training protocols. What I should say is that we don't actually have the most recent version of the return to training protocols. The EFL has given its member clubs an updated set of training protocols for a return to contact training, but as far as I know, they haven't been released to the public yet. 
And I don't think anyone in the press has seen them either. So there may be more details about those extra measures in the second set of protocols, which we'll probably get in the next couple of days. And what would that referral to the, the medical officer entail? Is there, is there any sense in what that would mean? At the moment, nothing more than it would then perhaps be left to their discretion to advise, uh, to advise further measures. I guess there is the potential if there was a large cluster to try and quarantine a team, but my impression is the EFL wants to avoid that at all costs. So I think if we end up in that scenario, we may well see a bit of a, a battle between the medical advisors and, and the league as to what will happen to a team with a large number of positive tests results. And does the EFL have a, a hard cut-off limit after which the competition is stopped? Not one that's been made publicly available, no. And I, I'm not sure they will have a concrete limit set. I think this will probably be left to a discussion between the medical advisors, the health authorities and the EFL itself. Personally, I think that the only way the competition will be stopped was if there was a consistent increase in the number of cases generally or if one or more of the clubs became unable to control a cluster of cases. I think the only time that we're going to see any kind of suspension in in play or the suspension of a team from the competition will be if it looks like they are they are unable to limit an increasing number of cases within the club. We've seen the EFL player tests fluctuate up and down in the time they've been running. How likely do you think it could be that the championship is ended early because of a flare-up in cases among players? So, as I said before, I'd be amazed if we get through the rest of the championship season without a cluster of cases developing at a club. The chance of players or staff with coronavirus slipping through the safety nets that we have is is sadly sizable. And the problem with the disease control is that it's a bit like defending for 90 minutes. You know, the attackers only need luck to fall their way once, whereas the defenders need to ensure that they don't make a single mistake. We're starting to realise that coronavirus is largely sped by super spreading events that one person spreads the virus to dozens more. As normality returned to Germany on May the 6th, around 100 people were infected with COVID-19 at an evangelical church service in Frankfurt. A few days later, in Lower Saxony, around 20 customers at a small restaurant became infected in a single event. Now, it's worth remembering here that at that time, there were around 1,000 infections a day in Germany, which is a much, much lower rate than there are in the UK. Research from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, Tropical Medicine suggests that around 80% of infections are caused by only 10% of carriers. So think of a group of footballers who have been told they are all negative, but one of those tests was wrong, and one of those players is actually positive. How quickly will that become? 5 cases, 10 cases, 100 cases? Coronavirus spreads so rapidly because it's, it's differentiated in the generation of new cases from each individual case. It's not this, It's not to say that each person generates 2.3 more cases. It's that 9 out of 10 people might not generate any new cases, but that 10th person could cause dozens and dozens of cases. You know, patient 31 in South Korea in February was a single case that generated 100 new cases individually. Like, uh, it's difficult to sort of to explain to people just how virulent this virus is in some people. And we, we don't understand why that is. We don't understand why some people transmit this virus so much more than others. But this is one of the reasons we have to be so, so careful. And one of the reasons why having incomplete or inadequate testing is so, so concerning. 
I want to talk a little bit about Germany for a number of reasons. Um, one of these is that there seems to be a subtle aliding of the differences between Germany and the UK in the football media. There seems to be this logic that if German football is back, then it only stands to reason that football in the UK should be able to come back. Could you briefly set out the differences between Germany and the UK on both the national scale regarding the pandemic, but then the footballing stage? Because obviously the Bundesliga has been back up and running for a few weeks now. So I think the most important thing to say about this to start off is that Germany has pretty much successfully contained the virus. According to Imperial College estimates released on the 30th of March, about 0.7% of its population have been infected since the start of the pandemic. The UK, however, has seemingly failed to contain the virus and has now seen 2.7% of its population infected. The week the Bundesliga returned, there were about 1,000 new infections a day in Germany. According to the latest figures from King's College London, in the UK we are at around 11,000 new infections a day. I don't see this figure dropping significantly by the time the Premier League is, is destined to return in less than two weeks' time or when the Championship is meant to return. And given the ending of the lockdown in the UK, we may well be in a case where we are seeing more new infections a day then than we are now. In, in fact, I think that's very likely. While Germany has a comprehensive test and trace system, this is simply not working in the UK. Figures leaked to Channel 4 this week show that traces are only reaching 34% of the contacts of confirmed cases. So that number has to be 80% for test and trace to be effective. So there's, there's a vast void between what test and trace should be doing and what it's actually achieving. Personally, I don't think there is any ethical argument for a return to football until we have contained the pandemic to at least the same degree as Germany, until we're down to around a 1,000 infections a day. And honestly, I think that is months off at the moment. We should also mention quarantining here. Um, the Germans are being quite strict from what I learn um, about the Bundesliga. Uh, their families are quite restricted. They have quarantining periods before the game um, and they're being very, very careful to, to keep players um, away from from possible sources of infections do you know how strict the premier league and the efl are being about quarantining before and after games and in general yeah so the bundesliga put all of their players into a seven-day quarantine before the first match of the the restart and there's also been some locally enforced quarantines because the local state authorities in germany have the power to decide uh, whether teams who test positive should be should be going into quarantine. So that was what led to Dynamo Dresden and the BL2 being forced into 14 days of quarantine after two positive tests. As far as I know, and this this may change or may just be something that's not been released to the public, there are no team-wide plans for quarantine in the EFL. I think that the players in particular have been pretty resistant to the idea of being kept away from their families. I think that's actually been a major point of tension within the discussion between the league and the PFA. So I think that those plans were kind of shot down in flames pretty early in in those discussions. So as far as I know, there aren't any active plans to quarantine whole teams after individual positive tests. That may just be something that hasn't been made public. But as far as I know, there are no plans for that at the moment. And then before and after games, is there any sort of quarantine system? I think in Germany, I think I've heard that like most teams are spending two or three days uh, away from their family uh, just, to, just to make sure. I don't believe there are. Like, There's certainly nothing about that in the, the first draft of the return to training protocols. 
maybe that will be something that they bring in later. But honestly, I think that's just that's just been seen as a non-starter by the league. They just don't feel they can persuade the players to stay away from their families. And I think that they have just sacrificed that possibility to keep the players on side, given that the, the huge difficulty that both the leagues had in, in winning the players round in the first place. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. It seems most natural to move here onto your third summary point from the extra inch so talking about the lack of safety with regards to training. Could you summarise your argument there? So the EFL's updated training protocols for contact tracing, as I say, haven't been publicly released yet, but the basic argument I'd make probably remains the same. The problem is, basically, that football is a team contact sport, and both of those elements, the team part and the contact part, make it risky. Firstly, it involves a large group of players and staff who have been training a certain way day in, day out for decades. Most professional players, as people will know, have been training in some form since they first learned to run. This is a deeply embedded form of, in form of activity, and, and players are deeply, deeply habituated to it. Anyone who has been involved in football training will know how tactile it is, whether it's players playfully shoving each other, hugging each other in celebration, or the cliche of a coach putting an arm around a player's shoulder. You have lots of people who are used to a form of training in which casual contact is is deeply normalised. Secondly, it's a contact sport. You can't train without challenging for a header, going shoulder to shoulder, tackling and being tackled. All of these bring you into close contact with another person, often repeatedly. This is a high-risk activity with a pulmonary virus. The protocols try to limit both of these risks, but they rely on team compliance. And it's not that I think players are going to purposefully ignore these protocols or, or try and break them, but I think they will struggle to remember them when they are back in a form of training where, up to now, there has never been a problem with contact and suddenly contact is being restricted and kept to a minimum as much as possible. I think players are creatures of habit. They have trained to be creatures of habit. And I think it's going to be really difficult to ensure that they don't just slip back into patterns of behaviour that are like, yeah, deeply habituated for them. And that isn't at all to blame them. I think it's just that it's going to be really hard to ensure that players limit contacts to a degree that they're going to have to, to ensure a limit to the potential spread of the virus. I also think that there's, there's a very 
strange sort of psychological element to to coronavirus in that we are living in in a time which is which threat levels are high but nothing really nothing seems that dangerous when you when you are told not to go near anyone and then you spend time in someone's vicinity and going close to them as they will be in in training suddenly you get to this situation where you're like well maybe this isn't as bad as as everyone's making out and and then as soon as you hit that point then you're going to just start disregarding the protocols right and you have an added problem on top of that which is all of the players will have been told that they're safe like by definition any player who's in training will have been told that they have tested negative there is going to be an air of false security like players are going to go into into training believing that there is no way they can be positive for the virus because they would have been assured that they've tested negative even though we know that that test may only be detecting 67 percent of the players who actually have the virus so I think the players to and staff to a degree have been misled about the fact that this is actually only an indicative test, not a comprehensive test. And there is a gap in the safety net, which I think the players are relying on totally, when actually it can only be part of a, a much more complete set of protocols. And yeah, I think that's, that's not being transmitted at all to the players and the staff by the EFL. Something that I've not put in the running order, actually, but we should maybe touch on is the fact that there's been a lot of studies that have been flying around about uh, contact time during training. What are your thoughts on those studies? So these studies, for, for those people who haven't come across them, is that they, they usually come with some kind of time um, control where they say that this this if, if you train with someone, you're only likely to be in contact with another person for 15 seconds or something. I mean, that's just a figure picked out of the air, but there's been a number of those sorts of um, studies coming out. So what, what's your take on those kinds of studies? Well, interestingly, the studies that were initially used to argue for a return to playing were only of playing. They were only of matches. There's an infamous study that came out from one of the Danish universities, which was quoted very heavily early on and was used by the Premier League to argue for a return to training, which only covered match day. It was data gathered before the suspension from uh, matches in from professional matches in Denmark. Uh, there was another study done by La Liga, which was also based entirely on, on match day events by tracking data gathered from players. So the first wave of studies that we had were actually only focused on playing, not training. I think subsequently there have been some, as you say, on training, but there's, there's a series of problems with those. Firstly, that they will probably only cover the time when players are technically training, so when players are actually physically in an area of the training ground carrying out physical work, which obviously a lot of the content that I was talking about are the things that you will have to and from that part of the training ground, you know, as players joking around, messing around on the way to whichever part of the pitch they've been assigned, it's staff putting their arms around people's shoulders on the way back from, from training, it's all of those physical interactions that you get when they're not being monitored that I'm particularly concerned about. So I think the problem is that there's been very little... I haven't seen a single study which has actually covered all of training. I've seen studies which have covered all of playing um, and studies that have, con- that have studied particular parts of training, but never one which has studied a training day. And I think it's the training day that's really important because that's when it's in the gaps between activity where I think the greatest risk is actually posed to players. So given the wider context of all of this, the testing and the training, how affecting do you think the EFL testing processes are going to be for preventing the spread of coronavirus? Honestly, 
I would be amazed if the championship completes the season without at least one cluster of cases developing. So without one case of multiple infections at a club. I think that will be a particular threat at one of the clubs doing self-testing. So clubs like Middlesbrough, which have decided that the players themselves can go home and test themselves without any oversight, I think may have a particular problem with that. But it, it could be any of the clubs. These tests are not are not perfect and players are going to slip through the slip through the net. We are having a huge number of tests every week and the margin for error is is quite large. There's there's going to be there are inevitably going to be false negatives and it's just a question of whether the league gets lucky and somehow disaster does not follow. Or the league gets unlucky and you know I I I would be amazed if all of the players and staff get through this unscathed there are going to be cases of transmission as far as I'm concerned. It's just the degree to which the virus spreads within a team. That's that's the only thing left to be seen. Uh, finally, we come to the issue of the disproportionate impact of coronavirus on BAME players, so black, Asian and minority ethnic players. Could you explain this issue to our listeners? Okay, so it's a fact that COVID-19 deaths are twice as high for BME people as they are for white people in Britain, and almost four times as high for those from a black British African background. There are two predominant causes of this increased vulnerability. So firstly, BME players, people are overrepresented in the riskiest jobs in Britain. A third of all working age black Africans are employed in key worker roles, 50% more than the share of the white British population. Um, it's also worth noting that Pakistani, Indian and Black African men are, retrospect- are respectively 90%, 150% and 310% more likely to work in healthcare than white British men. This goes all the way back to the end of the British Empire, the deliberate recruitment of Commonwealth migrants to the NHS, Transport for London and so on. So that's a huge part of the increased vulnerability. Secondly, BME people suffer the effects of structural racism. So as well as more risky jobs, BME people have poorer housing with more overcrowding in areas with more pollution and less access to green space. These contribute to a particular prevalence of underlying health conditions amongst those with a Bangladeshi, Pakistani or Black Caribbean background particularly. It's therefore completely unsurprising that black players from working class backgrounds, Dini, Kante, William, Rose, Sterling, have been most public about their concerns with Project Restart. They are from the most at-risk groups. Their friends and families are more likely to have underlying health conditions than white players, and they're more likely to be key workers. You know, let's not forget that Sterling's mother used to work as a cleaner, as did Kante's mother, as did William's mother. Their immediate families used to do these jobs, and some of their extended families still do. They're also from the group of people who have had the most close and intimate experiences, probably with tragedy throughout the course of this pandemic. You know, Sterling has talked very publicly about the fact that he's lost family members and that his friends have lost family members uh, due to coronavirus. So there's been a disproportionate effect on these people's families already. It's not just a risk, it's a very real reality for um, BME players and for black players in particular. So yeah, that's that's the, the sort of general contours of, of the particular risk and the particular dangers being experienced by BME players in, in Britain. I don't no, if you know what the proportion of BAME players there are in the championship, but I, I suspect it's likely high. Um, what impact do you think that this could have on the league with regards to coronavirus? Yeah, there's there's certainly, I don't have the most recent figures to hand, but there's there's certainly a, a very large number of BAME players in, in the championship. 
those players are more likely to have concerns about coronavirus because they're more at risk of contracting it and more at risk of complications from it. The league has, as far as I'm concerned, a particular responsibility to keep those players safe. And if it doesn't, it risks both its material ability to complete the season, given the, the large number of players who are, who are being within, within the championship and the ethical integrity of the league itself. You know, if it cannot protect these players, there has to be a serious question asked about whether the league should be continuing in and of itself. Um, if, if the league can't continue without posing a particular risk to BME players, I think that's a very important ethical question to be posed, particularly within the current context. Um, about whether it should be continuing. Let's move on just to talk about more general issues now then, because, and I think for me, I want to talk about what's at stake here, um, because I think a lot of this gets brushed under the carpet. We're often told when we talk about this on our channel, well, other industries are coming back. Why shouldn't football? After all, this environment is going to be so much safer than other industries. What does the worst case scenario look like from the point of view of championship football? What, what, why is it that people should care about this um, versus um, the, the return of other industries? So at the end of May, we learned that one con- club executive had contacted the Premier League out of concern that he might face corporate manslaughter prosecution if a player dies from COVID-19. In my opinion, the worst case scenario is fatalities and this is clearly the case for club executives too if they're already trying to establish liability in the case of uh, of the death of a player then it's pretty clear that this is their worst case scenario too the repercussions of a of a player dying would be huge and aside from obviously the most important point which is the the personal tragedy of the, the loss of the player's life this as far as I'm concerned, would clearly be manslaughter. I I think there would be huge legal repercussions. The season would undoubtedly have to be ended. There would be, obviously, all the financial costs of of the suspension of the or annulment of the season, plus the the repercussions of the, the legal costs. It would be an absolute disaster for everyone involved, most particularly the player and their families, but also the 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 wider EFL as an institution. And honestly, I, I really don't think this is implausible as people might think. Like, obviously, perhaps more care is being taken with the players than, than other sectors, but that should merely be a reason for people to question more vigorously why other sectors are being allowed to return. It shouldn't be the case that we're saying, oh, football is going back because everyone else is going back, and they should be going back because everyone else is going back. We should be asking, why are people being sent to work when we cannot assure their safety? It's It's been a matter for the last decade at least, or, or longer since the bringing in of health and safety legislation in the UK, that the understanding that if your workplace is unsafe, you shouldn't have to go to work and that you will be legally supported if you if you don't go to work. This has been swept under the carpet by the current government, but... The, the basic situation we should be in is no one should be risking their lives to earn a living. <laughs> and I think this doesn't just apply to football, that applies to more generally. So if the question is, well, other industries are coming back, why shouldn't football? We should say, why are other industries coming back? I want to talk a little bit about the, the timeline as well from here, because uh, obviously you do a huge amount of work looking at the way that the pandemics unfold. Um, 
what do you what do you think the the timeline is going to look like and obviously i'm asking you to speculate to a certain degree here but are we going to see some kind of petering out before a second wave um there's there's been some reports that the virus is tailing off um there was a report in reuters from an italian doctor talking about reduction in viral load and things like that what what would you say to that how would you say that the immediate timeline would probably look from here there is going to be a second wave i'm certain of that it just depends on the nature of that wave it depends whether that's going to be a big wave or we manage to suppress it into a series of small waves it also depends whether that second wave is due to a relaxation of the lockdown or perhaps even more concerningly the emergence of a more virulent and deadly strain of the virus personally in terms of a timeline i would speculate that by autumn this year, we will be seeing a global second wave, which may be more fatal than the first. In Britain, if lockdown continues to be used at the current careless rapidity, I fear that we may be into a second wave as early as July or August, and then maybe a global second wave could become a third wave in Britain, which would be absolutely calamitous. And that that would be my nightmare scenario, that we might be in a third wave by the end of autumn. I'm interested in in the aspect of the scrutiny of safety p- protocols in the media, particularly in the in the football media. Um, why do you think there's been so little scrutiny of safety p- protocols, uh, particularly in the football media? Do you think that's negligent on the part of journalists? I think there's three sort of main structural reasons why there's been so little scrutiny of these safety protocols in the media. There's Firstly, a lack of precedent. Journalists haven't seen a situation like this before, and and they're not historians. They aren't familiar with what happened to football during the Spanish flu, for example. Secondly, there's a vested interest. Anyone who follows football journalists on Twitter will have watched the struggle for content since football has been suspended. You know, football media depends on football being played to survive. Journalists need the game back. Their, Their jobs depend on it. So there's there's a material interest on their part to perhaps not be too critical of these safety protocols because they, they really need the game back. And yeah, I think that's that's to a degree understandable. Thirdly, and I think perhaps the most important point, is that people in authority have misled the media and the public. Uh, the EFL and the Premier League have assured people that this will be safer than going to the supermarket and Every time I hear that, it brings me out in hives. It's it's a completely unwarranted assertion, and but it's one that carries a lot of weight because the people saying it are very trusted or very powerful people. And I think, yeah, it's a combination of those three, three things. It's a lack of precedent, there's a vested interest, but there's also the fact that people in authority have consistently told people something which isn't actually true. And then just a final question, more from the perspective of the fans. Um, this is something that that I've struggled with, but how do you think that fans should feel about this kind of resumption of football? Is it irresponsible to be excited about football coming back? And what can we do as fans to be more responsible to to enjoy our sport without uh, necessarily uh, just giving up uh, any sort of moral injunction? I think the first thing to say about football coming back is it's coming back for no other reason than there's a financial necessity for it to come back. You know, the reason football is coming back is because the consequences of not finishing the season would be financially catastrophic for the clubs in the Premier League, Championship, League One. 
the only reason football is coming back is not because it benefits the players, not because it benefits the fans, not because it benefits the staff of those clubs, but because it benefits the balance sheets of those clubs. So I think fans should first look at this and say, well, who is this for? It's not for us. <laughs> We're not going to get to go to the games. Um, some of us may not get our, all of our money back from our season tickets. It's, it's not for us. It's for someone else. Um, so I think the first point that should be made is, is how we feel about this should be dictated about the fact that it hasn't been carried out in our interest at all. Secondly, I don't know if it's irresponsible to be excited about football coming back. You know, people are experiencing an absolute disruption of their daily lives. They've lost what is, I'm sure for a lot of other people, as it is for me, one of the great distractions in life. It's one of the few things that keeps me going in a bad week is the prospect of watching Tottenham on a, on a Saturday or a Sunday. Like, having football at the weekend is such an important thing to people's mental health, to their physical health. It's, 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 it's integral to the way that a lot of us get through our daily lives. I don't think it's I don't think it's irresponsible because it's not our decision for it to come back. It, it's not that fans have demanded this comeback and it's coming back for us. We are a side effect, a consequence of the fact that they have to complete the league to remain financially viable as companies. With all of that said, what can we do to be more responsible? Well, if football fans are serious about wanting more control of these clubs, about wanting more autonomy, and if they genuinely care about the welfare of the people who work for their clubs, they should call for a delay. Um, we shouldn't be playing until we have suppressed the virus to the same level as Germany, and until we have the same testing and tracing capacity as, as they have in operation there. I think that the Bundesliga was pretty much safe to go ahead. But the championship is not in Germany. Football should not come back until it is safe to do so. And in Britain, it is not safe. Alex, thank you so much for, for chatting to us. I've really enjoyed it. And I'm, I know that our listeners will be appreciative as well. Um, if people want to find out more stuff um, from your end, what's the best way of them following you? I guess that's a Twitter handle. Absolutely. Yeah, my Twitter handle is at Otomnia, A-U-T underscore O-M-N-I-A. Um, you can find me talking about disease, disasters, um, fairly constantly on there. So, And if you have any questions, I will, I'll try and answer them answer them on twitter I'd, I'd love to do that for people cool yeah so i guess there's not really much more that i could even say thank you for for coming on and uh yeah stay safe yeah absolutely a pleasure stay safe Joe.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.